The epistle lesson for today, the second Sunday after Trinity, is written in the ninth chapter of the Proverbs, beginning at the first verse. Wisdom has built her house, she has hewn her seven pillars, she has slaughtered her beast, she has mixed her wine, she has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks wisdom, she says, come and eat my bread and drink my wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live. Walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets abuse upon himself, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, for he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is in sight. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. The epistle lesson is written from the second chapter of St. Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, beginning at the 13th verse. But now in Christ Jesus you were once far off. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has both made us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one Father, one Spirit to the Father, So then, you are no longer uh, strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. The Holy Gospel is written in the 14th chapter, St. Luke, beginning at the 15th verse. Glory be to thee, O Lord. When one of those who reclined at table with Jesus heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent out his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. 
And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said unto his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Lord, what you have commanded has been done, and there is still room. The master then said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall ever taste my banquet. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, they'd been banqueting all night, and they had reason to celebrate. You see, they were winning. They were winning big. And so they had a great banquet. I mean, after all, it was Christmas, right? And Christmas is a time to celebrate, and they were celebrating. Lots of food, lots of wonderful desserts, lots of alcohol, wine, beer, booze. It was all there. It was good. It was a nice winter night, Christmas, just like off the postcards. Everything was good. Except it wasn't, and they didn't know that. But an old farmer was out in his field nearby, and he saw what was happening. He saw that there was danger approaching them. And so he did what a loyal farmer would do in the middle of the night when there's danger approaching. He went to warn those to whom the danger was coming. And he, so he went over to the town, and he tried to go see the commander of the garrison there, the colonel. But the colonel was done with his dinner and was enjoying his dessert and, and having drinks with his officers and, and playing cards. And he had given strict orders, I am not to be disturbed for any reason whatsoever. And so when the farmer came to, to try to warn everyone, the guard just said, no, you can't talk to the colonel and because he's, having, he's given strict orders. Probably had heard, heard too that the colonel and the, and the guards all spoke German and the farmer spoke English. That was a problem. So finally, in desperation, the, uh, the farmer got a hold of some writing materials and he wrote a note to the colonel. He said, Please give this to the colonel. Let him see it. But he couldn't read English very well and he certainly couldn't read English in cursive at all. And so, you know, the colonel looked at it. He couldn't figure out what it was. It was which ways to him. And he thought, well, I really need a translator, but I don't have one. And who's going to find one this late at night on Christmas Day evening? So he just took the, the note and folded it and stuck it in his pocket and went back to his cards and his bourbon and whatever desserts were left from Christmas meal. And that was that, right? That was that until in the pre-dawn hours, what, what, what it was able of General Washington's soldiers to get across the Delaware River that night struck Trenton, New Jersey, and even though they outnumbered the, the Hessians two to one, the Hessians were much better trained and much better equipped than the starving, half-trained Continentals. But the Continentals took them and beat them and gave new life to the rebel cause. Because you see, on Christmas Day, 1776, the rebel cause was almost completely destroyed. General Howe had come over and brought the, the veterans of the British Empire to North, to North America, had defeated Washington and Long Island, had defeated him every place they, they, they met them, had, had forced them out of New York. The rebel cause was on the ropes. And January 1, half the, half the Continental Army's enlistments were up, and he was going to lose his army. And Washington had to do something de desperate. And that was the thing that happened that breathed new life into the rebel cause. If Rawl had read the note, if Rawl of the Hessians had seen the farmer, 
Maybe his soldiers wouldn't be all drunk and hung over and unable to fight. Maybe he would have ambushed them. And the revolution would have been over before it really had begun. And there would have been no Constitution and no Bill of Rights and no United States of America. But all that didn't happen because of a poor decision about a dinner party. It's funny how this is, isn't it? And today's gospel lesson describes an equally impactful decision made about a dinner party, right? About how those invited to a dinner party, and by extension ourselves, right, and those not invited, are impacted greatly, in fact, eternally. For Jesus in today's gospel lesson in Luke 14 describes how a certain man gave a great supper, and he invited many And he sent his servant to to say, the supper is ready, come. But they that were invited, all of them, with one accord, began to make excuses. And one said, I have bought a field, and i got to go look at the field. And another one said, well, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I have to go and and examine them. And another one said, I have married a wife, and I cannot come. And so we witnessed a most extraordinary thing. And to the Middle Eastern person, what we're witnessing here is, is, is shockingly scandalous. To Americans, you know, we, you know, we don't place the same emphasis on eating a meal together as the Middle Easterners do, but, but, but certainly this is rude in our own minds. But to somebody from the Middle East, this is shocking. I mean, and this is horrible, right? Now, now, we know that the certain man is God, and the Great Supper is the messianic appearance of Jesus and, and, and his gifts that he gives to us through his church. And we know that the guests that refuse to attend are, are, is Israel that rejects him. But even, even if it's just secular, from the, from the standpoint of the ancient world, this is a shocking, shocking story. It's much more shocking than, than American sensibilities, you know, sense. See, because you see, according to the rabbinic commentary and Lamentations, the Midrash of Rabbah, Lamentations 4, verse 2, the, the rabbis that wrote that said that, that it, in, in, in the first century Jerusalem, no one accepted an invitation to dinner unless they were invited twice. They had to be invited twice. And they would accept twice. So you have a first acceptance of the invitation and a second exception, accepting of the invitation. Which means that the time to back out of an invitation is the first time you're invited. So the first time you're invited, you don't want to go to it, or you don't think you can go to it, you, you then beg off. Oh, I thank you for inviting me, but I can't come. So the fact that this messenger goes out to those invited means they've already accepted the invitation to be there. Right? That's the reason why he sent his serpent, servant at supper time to say to those who are invited, come, everything is ready. Right? But the intended guests, those who have already made the commitment to be at the supper, right, what do they do? They refuse to come. All of them, they refuse to come. And they give the most ridiculous, flimsy, pathetic excuses. Right? They do. You see, because from the standpoint of an American, these excuses don't seem to be so invalid. But from a Middle Easterner, these excuses are, 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 are just ridiculous. They're, the first excuse, let's consider that. It's a bold-faced lie. 
You see, in the Middle East, no one buys a field without knowing everyone, that, everyone who's ever lived there. When you buy a piece of land in the Middle East, you know the entire history of that piece of ground, everything about it. You, you know its history hundreds of years back, and you walk that ground before you purchase it. You, you know where every stone is and where every piece of water is and, and, and where every, every, every tree is and bush and shrub and everything. I mean, you know everything about it before a Middle Easterner buys a piece of land. In fact, in fact you, know, uh, you know, good land in the Middle East is so precious that, that a lot of times these lots and these, these, these little parcels of land in the Middle East, they actually have proper names attached to them. Right? You know, kind of like what, we, what we, we've done in America, sometimes like with, you know, Andrew Jackson's property, old, the Hermitage or something. I mean, we, they have the proper names, and they're, they're, they're precious. Right? So no one would buy a piece of land sight unseen in the Middle East. I mean, it, it is absolutely unthinkable to the Arab or the, ancient, or, or the Hebrew that you would do this. So to say, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go to see it, it's just, I mean, I mean just, I mean, no one says this. I mean, it's like saying, I bought a, bought a house uh, over the phone without looking, uh, looking at it, anything about it, without knowing anything about it. I just, I just bought this house, and I've I got to go see what neighborhood's in. I don't I have no clue. Who does that? The second excuse is equally absurd. Because, you see, teams, oxen are, are sold in a team. My grandfather used to tell me, because they, they had a yoke of oxen when, when he was a farmer. He grew up as a farmer outside Daytona in Florida, when Florida was still like, like farmers and stuff. And, and he said, you know, a yoke of oxen, they're two, basically two bulls that are castrated, and they, they work together as a team. And if one dies, the other one's useless. You might as well just have a barbecue with him, because he, he won't, you can't get a new oxen to pull with him. The, the, t- the oxen always come as teams, right? And, and in the Middle East, no one, just, no one buys five teams of oxen sight unseen. How you sell oxen in the Middle East works like this, one of two ways. The first way is there'll be a market, and there'll be a field on the side of the town or the village, and the farmers will have their oxen out there that they're selling, or the broker, brokers will have the oxen out there, and they'll be hooked up and yoked and ready to go, and people will actually like test drive them. And you buy them that way. Or, or the other way, in a small village where maybe it's just a farmer, he's got one yoke, one, te- one, yoke, one yoke of oxen or one team of oxen, what they'll do is he'll say, on Thursday I'm going to go plow this field over here. Any of y'all that are interested in these oxen, come out and you can actually drive the oxen or witness the oxen performing and see if you like them. Okay? No one ever in the Middle East buys oxen without first trying them out. No one does this. This, this never happens. So for somebody to say, oh, I can't come, have me excuse because I bought five yoke of oxen, it's just, again, it, it, I mean, no one does this. It, it is absolutely exceedingly rude and absurd. And then the third excuse, because at least the first two guys have, have the decency of saying, please have me excused, the final, the final invitee, is rude beyond the pale because he says simply, I've married a wife and I cannot come. I've married a wife and I cannot come. Now, why is this rude? Well, again, this is, this is probably where we Americans are most tone deaf because we Americans, we talk about our women all the time, right, guys? I mean, in fact, we use our wives as excuses for why we don't do certain things. Oh, you know, the old lady's mad, or my wife won't let me do something, or my wife doesn't like this, or something like that. We talk about our wives all the time, right? Frequently in a derogatory fashion, which is not, not right. 
But you see the Middle Eastern men, Hebrew, Hebrew, Christian, Arab, and Muslim, all of them, they don't ever talk about their women. Ever. To you. They don't talk about them. Middle Eastern male society maintains a formal restraint about talking about their own women. In, Arab, in, in, in Arabic, it's interesting, the word harem, women, haram, sacred, and harem, forbidden, are all from the same root word. And in a formal setting, men do not ever, ever discuss their women. Ever. In fact, there was a guy named Thompson. He was a, he was an ex, he, he was a British guy, became an expert in... in um, in Middle Eastern uh, life and uh, before the advent of the modern age, modern era, really. And he documents how a man, an Arab man, be Christian or Muslim or, or, or a Jewish man from the Middle East, when they traveled and had to write a letter and they had only daughters, they would address the letter to the son who they hoped would one day be born. So, so guarded are they towards their, their women folk. You know, it's a high respect of them. They just they don't they don't they don't include them in normal conversation because they're sacred to them. They don't they don't you, you don't talk about the women. Ben Sharak's you know the medieval the medieval Jewish scholar shows the same kind of attitude. So so it is understood that that, that, a, that a person would never use their wife as an excuse for why they're not going to do something. Now, some people might say, well, yeah, but, but a man was excused from, from, from war for a year, right, if he married a wife. Yes, that's true. He was, he was excused from, from being deployed over, away from the, the, the nation for a year, the first year he's married. That is correct. But there's no war going on. The host isn't even asking the guy to leave his village. He's going he's gonna to go for a few hours and eat a meal and then be in the arms of his wife before the evening is over. So the fact that he says, I have a wife, I cannot come, is just, and he doesn't even ask to be excused. It, 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 is, it is a response that is calculated to infuriate the guy given the supper. And I wonder sometimes if our own excuses are no less transparent to the Lord, flimsy and insulting. I mean, at confirmation, didn't we take vows and make, a, make a, a, agreements with God? Didn't we commit to Him to do certain things? And then we make excuses to Him. Often do we skip the great banquet called the divine service and deny ourselves the words of eternal life and the everlasting certainty of heaven embedded within those, those words and in those sacraments for literally nothing. Things that are not anything. Yet heaven will be filled. The gospel lesson today makes it very clear. Heaven will be filled. It just, not be, it just not be, it might be filled with us. But it will be full. It will be full. Just you and I may not be there. Because, and that's, that's the second part of this gospel lesson. The servant came and reported to his master, and the householder was furious. Well, understandably, you understand why he's furious now. And what does he say to his servant? He says, go out into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the maimed, the blind and the lame. In other words, bring in those whom the, the normal guest would have rejected. 
Bring in all the, 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 all the people of the town are of ill repute. The ones who you would never, the, you know, that aren't part of polite society. Bring them in. Bring them in. That my house may be full. Yes. And why does the host do this? Well, if, you know, when you're looking at it from the standpoint of somebody from the Middle East, the fact that all the, gas, all the original guests together refuse to come seems to indi- indicate collusion. Like, like they're thinking, well, if none of us show up, th- this banquet's going to be a failure. If none of us come, it's not going to work out for this, the host, and he's going to be humiliated. Okay. But by reaching out to the unworthy guests, right, people that the host is not socially indebted to, the poor, the blind, the lame, right, the maimed, people who will never, ever be able to respond in kind to the kindness of this householder, right? He, he is the householders acting with what's called unexpected, visible demonstration of love within his humil- as he's being humiliated. He, he's, 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 he's going around these people. He's, 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 you know, he's going around their maneuver. And from a Middle Eastern standpoint, right, this is a brilliant move, but it's also calculated to, 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 uh, in, to, to stir up anger against the, the host from the original guest. Because most likely, they will be infuriated by the attempt, by, by the host attempt, uh, to get around their, their sabotaging of his banquet. And that later, he'll, he'll feel their wrath, which is exactly what happens, actually, in Luke 15, verse 2, where the man receives sinners. Jesus is accused of receiving sinners and eating with them. Additionally, why does... The host, who we know, as I said earlier, is God. Why does, he, why does he bring in the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame? Because they represent true believers. The poor, the maimed, the, bland, the blind, and the lame are those who know, right, they are saved by grace through faith. That's why they are poor, because they know they have nothing that they can do to earn God's grace, right? I mean, they are, they are maimed because, or they are blind because they know that, that the only way they can see salvation is through, through the light of God's word. That no other light, no other philosophy can ever, can ever open to them and show them the way to eternal life. They are, they are maimed and they are lame because they know that even though they have been saved by grace through faith, the old Adam lives within them. They've been injured by sin, right? And will never, ever be whole in this life. And they also know that because of sin and their own sins and the existence of the old Adam within them, that their, their walk of faith will always be that of a, a lame man, one who walks with a limp because their obedience will always be imperfect. And then there's the final group, the final group, right? The last part into the Great Supper, right? Who are these? Because the master said to his servant, you know, because the servant said there's still room. He said, go out into the highways and hedges, the highways and hedges, and compel those uh, to enter that my house may be full. Well, if the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame are, are, are those within the town, in other words, those whom, who are still Hebrew, but good Hebrew society rejects, right? They're, they're, the, they're the, the poor standing citizens of the Hebrew community, the Old Testament church, then this last group must be the, new, the non-Hebrews, the Gentiles, the, the people who, who are outside of the Old Testament church. In other words, people like, like us, Gentiles. Right? These are the non-Hebrews. And so God's logic says, if the insiders, the people I wanted to invite, I did invite, reject me, 
that's not a problem. I'll just give their gifts to others. I'll give their gifts to people who are outsiders. And why, why do I say this? Because the word highways in, he, in Greek, it, it literally means, it, it doesn't, it, it means the roads that are used, you know, for uh, long distance travel, kind of like our interstates today. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the Middle East, the people will use like these little footpaths between their villages. So, you know, you know, so a Hebrew village over here and a Hebrew village over there, the people would go back and forth on these little footpaths and these little, little, little like small little lanes that are kind of, that you can't really see from, uh, from the highway. The highways are, the, are more the trade routes. Those are where the caravans and the, and the major commerce is going through. And those, the people on those will be, some will be Hebrew, but most will be Gentiles. Right, so go gather them in from the highways. Is talking about non-Hebrew, non-Jews, and there's no indication that these people are, are outcasts either. They're just they're just outside the village. They're just outside the Hebrew community. And from this, uh, these words of the householder, we are seeing a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 25, 6 through 9, where, where Isaiah predicts that the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wine on the lees, a, a feast of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wine on the lees, because God's Son, Jesus Christ, comes to save all all peoples. He dies for all peoples. He's raised from his grave and lives at Easter for all peoples, right? I mean, it's God's goal through his son, Jesus Christ, that none perish, that all be saved. Yes, this is the good and pleasing thing that is in sight of the Lord, our Savior, who desires all peoples, all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ, as, as our Lord tells us through St. Paul in 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. Yes, He, the Lord God, the Savior of the world, He is the host of the great banquet in heaven, and His feast will be full. The only ones who will not taste it, it will not taste or enjoy its eternal sweetness, are those who make feeble excuses. In the name of Jesus, amen.